I hope you guys had a fantastic Thanksgiving. I really do. And, and I can't help but think, as I think on those terms, of how good God has been to us. Over the last 10 years, God has gathered some incredible people. He has uh, taught us some really important lessons. And I've never been more excited to start a new season than I am with this season now. I'm, I'm really excited. Well, as a church, as I mentioned, we've got a lot to be thankful for. And, and now as we turn this corner towards Christmas, we thought we'd have a series that presses into that. So today we're launching a brand new series called The God of the Misfits. And as I was preparing for this series and I was thinking about misfits, there was a movie that came to mind. We'll get to that in a second, but first I want to just kind of set this whole thing up. When I was a kid, TV was very, very different than it is today. Really, really. And many of you can relate. Many of you can relate. Back when I was a kid, here's how TV worked. You had to be in the right spot at the right time with the right channel or you missed it. There was no streaming. There was no on-demand. There weren't DVDs. There weren't even these things that we used to call VHS. The way TV worked is you would hear through a commercial or this thing we called TV Guide. It was written on paper. We've talked paper before in here. It's this really old invention. And thing. But anyway, so, so we, would, we would hear about a show that was going to come on. And then we would write it down on our calendars. And then we would have to wait. And again, you had to be in the right place at the right time. Or if you missed that thing... If it was a once-a-year show, you didn't get to see it for another year. If it was like a sports event, that was it. No chance, right? Okay, so the movie I was thinking about that was come, came on once a year as I was thinking about the series was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Have any of you ever heard of that, that movie before? All right, many of you have heard of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Now, this is one when I was a kid. I looked forward to this. And when the commercials would come on, I'm like, we got to write that down and we got to be ready to go so we don't miss this story. Because it was a fun, fun story that I loved as a kid. And I wanted to make sure when that story came on TV, little Chris was there, ready to go with his popcorn, you know, as that story came on the TV screen. Well, 2,000 years, 2,000 years before that, there was a moment that the children of Israel were looking forward to. They were looking forward to a moment, a moment when the promised Messiah would arrive. And there was a great expectation for that day, only they didn't know when the day was going to come. So they were waiting for this moment, and guess what happened? Many of them missed it. Many of them missed it when it came, because it came in a very unexpected way. And as we work our way as a church towards Christmas this year, we're going to dig into the reflections of someone who was personally invited into the story. This wasn't something that he just sat back and kind of watched all this thing unfold. He was invited into the story, to God's story, by Jesus himself. And the name of that man was Matthew. As you're about to see, Matthew opens up his account of this unfolding story by flipping everything upside down flips it all upside down. He leaves certain characters out and he includes people and places that no one else includes. And he does all this on purpose. So let's discover why. If you have your Bible with you, let's open up to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew was written by this guy. Matthew, this is a real first century document written by a real person named Matthew. And as we're opening up to our Bible, if you have one, I want to let you know if you don't have one, 
We'd love to give you one free. Merry Christmas. We got Bibles for you right there at the, at the, uh, the door. We'd love for you to take one on your way out. Now, we, we have people that come from all kinds of backgrounds here. We recognize that not everyone's familiar with the Bible. And so let me just quick give you an overview as we dig in here today. The Bible is divided into two sections, two big sections. You got the Old Testament, which are the events that happened before Jesus. And then you have the New Testament, which are the events that happened during Jesus and after Jesus. So those are the two parts. Now, Matthew's gospel, as we call it, it fits right between the old and the new. So this is the first book of the New Testament. And millions of people who begin their own personal exploration of who Jesus is and what he did and who he was, many people start here with the book of Matthew. In fact, I was this week, I was getting my hair cut, and, and, and the guy cut my hair. He's like, you know, where, where would you start if you're going to read the Bible? I've never, I've never read the whole thing. I'm like, Matthew, start Matthew. Well, when people start in the book of Matthew, it starts in a really interesting way that doesn't seem interesting to most of us. It starts with a long list of names. It's called a genealogy. Now, why would, why would he do this? Because, you know, to us, again, we, we, we think of this, and most of us with modern minds, and we're like, this is a really weird place to start with a long list of names. Well, this didn't seem strange to the people that he wrote this to. In fact, this is exactly where you'd want to start. If you're going to prove something is real, you start with real people, and you build that lineage all the way up. Here's how one scholar, N.T. Wright, he writes this about, about how people would have seen this in the day. For many cultures, ancient and modern, and certainly in the Jewish world of Matthew's day, this genealogy was the equivalent of a roll of drums, a fanfare of trumpets, and a town crier calling for attention. So early audience, they would have said, okay, this is really good stuff here. Well, Matthew was very, 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 very intentional when it came to this list of ancestors. Let me show you why I say that. If you have your Bibles, let's look at verse 17, chapter 1, verse 17. And, and what he does. Now, we're going to get a little bit to the list of names in a second, but here's how he summarizes it. After he gives this list of names, here's how Matthew summarizes this genealogy. He writes this in verse 17. So, from all the generations from Abraham to David were what number? 14. Remember that number. From all the generations from Abraham to David, there were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, there were 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ were 14 generations. What number does he keep repeating? 14. And he says there was 14 from this point to this point, 14 from this point to this point, 14 from this point to this point. Here's a problem with that. There were more than 14. There were more than 14. If you fact check Matthew you're going to see there was not exactly 14 generations between all these generational milestones. Why would Matthew lead off with something that's not historically accurate? Matthew's whole point in writing is to convince a primarily Jewish audience that Jesus of Nazareth was the long-awaited Messiah. Well, why would Matthew lead then with something that his audience would most certainly fact-check? The Jewish audience, they had the facts. They had the Old Testament scriptures. And they would have most certainly fact-checked, especially something as controversial as what Matthew was going to write. Well, countless scholars have looked into this. If you ever have a question about the Bible, I'm going to guarantee you, you're not the first one. Countless scholars have looked into this, and they've discovered a number of interesting things. We only have time to just touch on two of them. One of them has to do with literary genre. We bring this up a lot in, the, in, in here. 
In this case, this type of literature, first century narrative, followed different rules than Western biographies. Matthew was free. In fact, it was important that he did this. Take real events, and then you organize the real events in such a way as to emphasize key themes. That's how this genre worked. And one of Matthew's most distinctive titles for Jesus is the son of David. Matthew uses the name David at least 15 times. Well, one of these key themes that Matthew was trying to get across to this audience by bundling the real information the way he did, he was trying to make the case that Jesus was the rightful heir to the throne of King David. And this is going to put him into play in a couple weeks because the guy who was currently serving as the king of the Jews at the time, he wasn't related to King David. In fact, I don't even think Herod the Great was Jewish. Herod the Great was an opportunistic military commander whom the Romans had made into a king to further their own Middle Eastern agendas. In a couple of weeks, we're going to see what happened when this guy heard of these prophecies of a legitimate king who had been born. Well, Matthew opens his account of Jesus' life by shining a spotlight on the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of these ancient prophecies that foretold of a descendant of King David who would be the Messiah, the anointed one. So that's why he uses his genealogy in part to say, see, this is he's a direct link here between Jesus and King David. And Matthew was very intentional with how he constructed it. And that includes the use of the number 14. The Hebrews assigned a numerical value to each letter. So everyone's name had a numerical value. Guess what the numerical value of David was? 14. But establishing that Jesus is the rightful heir to the throne of King David isn't the only thing that Matthew sets out to do with the list of names. And we're going to come back to this list of names in just a few minutes because it's really fascinating stuff. But first, what I want to do is give you a little bit of background about Matthew himself. Because I recognize that there's probably a lot of people in here that don't know. Maybe you've heard the name this time of year especially, but maybe you don't know much about Matthew. Here's a little bit about him. A little bit about background. For those who are waiting... For the Messiah to appear, nobody would have expected that when the Messiah did arrive, that the Messiah would choose Matthew to become one of the people who would share God's story with the world. Why didn't they, would nobody have expected that? Because Matthew was a tax collector. Now, tax collectors don't have a big fan base today. But in that time and in that place, the word despised was not too strong of a word for how people felt about people like Matthew. Tax collection was a private enterprise. In each district, Rome granted the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. Anything they collected above the bid went into their own pockets, and everyone knew that. Tax collectors were often considered unclean for at least two reasons. One, because they were hanging around a lot of people, many of whom were unclean. Another reason was they were handling coins all the time. And Roman coins were stamped with images and with words that the Jewish people found blasphemous. So they thought these people were unclean. But there was a bigger reason they despised them than that. And the bigger deal was the fact that tax collectors were willing collaborators with Roman oppression. All of this made Matthew a misfit. 
All of this made Matthew a misfit. And there's a place to write this in your notes. Inside your bulletins, we have this outline that you can follow along with. And there's some places you can write down some key thoughts. And I think this is a key thought. Matthew was a misfit because of choices he made. Choices he made. Matthew had made a choice to follow this career path. And he was a misfit because of it. And Matthew knew this. This was really fun. I want to show you something I never noticed before. It seems like I'm saying that a lot. I really had read my Bible before coming to pastor. But I'm just like, the more you dig in, it's like every time, just about you go into the word, if you study it, you're going to see something you never noticed before. Anybody else have that experience? You see something you never noticed? I had that happen this week. All right. What I did is I, I'd never done this before. I, I decided to, do a, to search the word Matthew in Matthew to see how Matthew speaks of himself. So I said, how many times does Matthew use the word Matthew? How many times does he refer to himself? And what does he say when he does? I only found two. I only found two. And in both cases, as he names himself, he presents himself as an outsider, as a misfit. Let me show you what I, where I found this. The first one I found was Matthew 9, chapter 9, verses 9 through 11. This is where we're introduced to Matthew by name. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at a table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and with sinners? How many times does he use tax collectors? He uses it a lot, right? He's making that point. Well, the Pharisees that we just read about, they considered themselves to be gatekeepers of religious righteousness. And in that time and in that place, to sit down and share a meal with people was to say, these are my people. That's what you did. When you sat down and you had a meal with them, you were telling the world, these are my people. And the Pharisees thought that Jesus needed an intervention because he was eating with the wrong crowd. In one of just two places where Matthew identifies himself in his gospel, Matthew makes it clear that, that religious people didn't think Matthew belonged at the same table as Jesus. But, in Jesus' eyes, Matthew and Jesus were right where they were supposed to be. Jesus saw things very differently. N.T. Wright puts it this way. He says, why does Jesus eat with the tax collectors and sinners? Because while other religious leaders of the day saw their task as keeping away from possible sources of moral and spiritual infection, Jesus saw himself as a doctor who'd come to heal the sick. There's no point in a doctor staying in quarantine. He'll never do his job. In the story that Matthew had been invited into, Matthew was right where he was supposed to be. Okay, so that was one of the two times. The only other time I could find where Matthew uses his own name and describes himself in this way was in Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Never noticed this before either. Take a look at this. And this is a list of names here. And Jesus called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the what? Tax collector. Does he say Peter, the fisherman? No. 
And then look what happens. James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Matthew is the only one on the list whose career is singled out. And he is singled out along with Judas, who later betrays Jesus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot. Zealots were militant Jews who believed the will of God could be carried out through violence. And the historian Josephus, a first century historian, blamed the Zealot party for the great war that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem. All that to say, Matthew lumps himself with those two, Judas and Simon the Zealot. When you zoom in, when you zoom in to these sections that we just highlighted, Matthew is a misfit. Matthew's a misfit. He doesn't fit with the religious people. But one of the things I want to encourage you to do, either with yourself or do this with, with family or friends or do this in your small church, zoom in to Matthew 9 and 10 and then zoom out. And start to look at all of the unexpected things that Jesus did. And all of the unexpected things that he said. And you start to see that this Messiah is not behaving the way many people expected. Misfits fulfill key roles in God's unfolding story. Remember how I said Matthew uses the name David 15 times. Matthew also uses the word fulfill. 15 times. Fulfill. Misfits were fulfilling important parts in God's story. Which means I think we need to take a quick break for a video. How does that sound, kids? Because this illustrates what we're talking about right now. So we're going to take a little clip here into the Rudolph, Rudolph movie. And we're going to show something here. We're going to show two of the misfits. There's a bunch of misfits in, in the movie. But we're going to show two of them. One of them is Hermie. Hermie the elf. And Hermes is a misfit because he's an elf, but he wants to be a dentist. You know the story. Let's see if you can go two for two. The other misfit is Rudolph. Rudolph's a misfit because he's got a shiny what? Red nose. Compared to those around them, they're a couple of misfits. And they even have their own misfit bromance theme song. And you get to hear it right here, right now. Let's roll the clip. Who needs CGI? When you got that, come on. That was amazing, amazing. The only thing we were missing, we'll have to, if we ever did this, we'll have to get the little bouncing ball to sing along, right? Sing along with Rudolph. All right, well, you got these two misfits, but each one of them plays a key role in the story, don't they? Each one of these misfits plays a key role in the story because Hermie helped to save the day, didn't he? How did Hermie's dentistry help save the day? Yes, sir. Yes, exactly. There was a big abominable bumble and he got rid of all of his teeth. All right. And what did Santa ask Rudolph to do with his nose so bright? Everyone, won't you? Absolutely. So, so there, there's this, this story, right? Where the misfits had an important role to play. And now we can go back to Matthew. And we're going to see God uses misfits. And if you think I'm just stretching this thing too thin, let's go back now to that genealogy. This is clearly a theme of his. So, all the way back to Matthew, chapter 1. Here we go. This is how Matthew opens up his book. He writes this. As he begins to tell the story of Jesus, he writes, Matthew 1, 1, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if we had more time, 
we would do some side-by-side literary comparison here because it is fascinating to put the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, with the first book of the Old Testament, Genesis, and to see the parallels. It is absolutely fascinating. One of the things I just want to point out here quickly is that Greek readers often called the book of Genesis the book of generations. That's what they called it. So a Greek reading audience would look at this thing and they would open it up and they'd see now this is saying the book of genealogy, which is all about generations. So Matthew connects his book to Genesis with his Greek reading audience. And here's something else that's interesting. I didn't know this either. There's some scholars who believe that Matthew wrote his original manuscript in Hebrew, which really gets interesting. Because if that's the case, the phrase that's used in Genesis to introduce Um, major sections is also used by Matthew to open this account. Here's why I'm telling you all this. After establishing a link between what he's about to say and Genesis, Matthew does this. He says, you think you know where the story's going? It's going to take an unexpected turn. And he does that, not just by using the words that I use there, but by this genealogy. This is a very unexpected genealogy. The way he constructs this thing is not how people normally did it. Matthew, for instance, he flips the whole family tree upside down. The whole tree upside down. It's as if to say, like I said earlier, if you think where, you know, where God's story is going, it's about to take an unexpected turn. And one of the ways you can compare two ancient documents is compare Matthew and compare Luke. They both have the same source material. They both have a genealogy in them. Look at how different the two are. Matthew is more, or Luke is more conventional. Luke, what he does is he starts with the most current person and works his way backwards. That's the normal way the Greco-Roman template was designed to work. Luke starts with the person he's talking about and works back in time. Matthew does the opposite. So people are already kind of going, whoa, you're you're doing things different here. The reader's equilibrium is thrown off a bit. And then Matthew really messes with them. We've already established that Matthew left a lot of names out. That's not surprising. People in the ancient world did that all the time. What is surprising are the names that Matthew included. That's what's surprising. Generally speaking, in ancient times, people used genealogies to make somebody look good. Let me give you an example that came to me just this morning. I give from from the document itself. I was reading through my notes this morning and and getting ready, and and, and the thought popped into my head, oh yeah, there's that verse somewhere in the New Testament about how when Jesus was doing amazing things and teaching amazing things and all this, there were people who said, yeah, but his daddy was Joseph and his mom was Mary, and so forget that. I'm thinking, wouldn't that be cool if that was in Matthew? Guess what? It is. Matthew 13, 13, 55 says this. After astonishing people with his wisdom and mighty works, people said this about Jesus. Then they scoffed. He's just the carpenter's son. And we know Mary, his mother, and his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. As if to say, we know who your daddy was. He was not all that impressive. So how can you be impressive? Right? In his misfit genealogy, Matthew is very purposeful when it comes to shining light into some very dark corners. Here's one example. There's a guy named Jeconiah in Matthew 1.12. This descendant of Jesus was so evil that his entire family line was cursed. And Matthew doesn't just name names like this guy. Matthew goes as far as to include commentary like this in Matthew 1.6. David 
was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Evidently a story here, right? And what does Matthew do about that story? Shines a spotlight on it. Draws everyone's attention to it. There's a place to write this down in your notes. Matthew highlights misfit stories that most people would have hidden. Matthew highlights misfit stories that most people would have hidden. And at the bottom of your notes, I want to encourage you to, if you don't have resources like the one I've listed at the bottom, get a couple of these. Because then you can dig deeper. Because we have kids with us today, we cannot share the content behind some of the names on this list. Because some of it's PG-13, some of it is R. Am I not kidding? This is the truth, isn't it? It is some very stuff. There are people in the Bible that made horrible choices. And the Bible does not pull punches on that. It is very honest about that. And if you look into the stories behind those names, you're going to see things that are scandalous. As Matthew names names, one of the characteristics that make Matthew's list of ancestors even more unique is the fact that he includes women in his list. And this is, again, fascinating. Take Luke. Luke, who does more than almost any other person I can think of in the first century to highlight how Jesus shatters glass ceilings for women, even he doesn't include women in his genealogy. Matthew does. And every time he does, there's more to the story, which probably has the audience a bit on edge when he closes his list this way. Matthew 1.16, Joseph, the husband of Mary, whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. And that's what we're going to pick up next week because Mary and Joseph were misfits too. Matthew's telegraphing that right there. Well, in this series, we're going to see that Matthew was a misfit. Mary and Joseph were misfits. The Magi were misfits. Different characters who Matthew included in his account of the first Christmas, they were misfits. And they were misfits for different reasons. We're going to explore that. But one of the things that I did see is this. All of Matthew's misfits had two things in common. Number one, these misfits saw something that most people missed. These misfits saw something that most people missed, and they didn't stop there. The number two, they did this. They took a courageous step of faith in that direction. They saw something most people missed, and they took a courageous step of faith in that direction. As I was prepping for this week, I noticed that when Matthew took his step, he didn't mention that he left everything to follow Jesus. Luke mentions that. Matthew doesn't mention that I had one of the most lucrative professions in the entire area, and I left all of that to follow Jesus. We have to speculate as to why he didn't mention that. When I read what he wrote about Jesus, I come to the conclusion that Matthew realized this is such a trade up, I'm not even going to mention that. Jesus had canceled a debt that would have taken 7,000 lifetimes to pay. And Jesus led Matthew to a treasure worth leaving everything to gain. Those aren't simply teachings that Matthew includes in the book of Matthew, those are things that he experienced firsthand. And there's a place to write this in your notes. If you've made mistakes, if you feel like an outsider, let me share something that Matthew, the tax collector, the money guy, the numbers guy discovered. God has already accounted for your missteps and your mistakes. God knows everything that you've done. He knows 
everything that you've done. And he's done everything necessary to give you a fresh start. If you'll let him do that. If you'll take a courageous step of faith. I encourage you to write this down. If you've written down nothing else that I've written, would you please write this down? The choices you've made aren't as important as the choice before you. You cannot go back and undo anything that you've done. But you can take a fresh start today, can't you? It's courageous. It's going to be hard generally, but you can do this. The choices you've made aren't as important as the choice before you. And I'm not minimizing anything you've done. But the reason why I can say this with confidence is you go and you look at that list. And you look at what those people did on Matthew's list. And look how God used them. If he can use people on that list, he can use you. And he wants to use you to play an important role, an important role in his story. When Jesus invited Matthew, the misfit, to follow him, there were self-appointed insiders who said, Jesus, you're making a mistake. The truth is, Matthew's the one who made the mistakes. And Jesus was going to show the world what he could do through those mistakes. Here's our invitation for this series. Number one, will you dare to believe that God can use a misfit like you? That's where it starts. Will you dare to believe in a God who knows everything you've done and he invites you to follow him? He still sees, someone someone needs to hear this, he still sees a future with a happy ending for you. He still sees a future with a happy ending for you. Our world would benefit from more people who could say with authenticity, I was going this way. God called me by name. I'm now going this way, and it's a trade-up. That could be your story. And here's part two of today's invitation. Will you welcome prodigals home? Will you welcome prodigals home? Prodigal is a term that we use in the, in the church world once in a while to, to describe someone who was going a different way, and they realized this is not the way I want my life to go. And they come broken and repentant and they say, I want to start again. I want to I have a new life. I want a fresh start. If that's you, welcome home. Welcome home. I, I love how Caitlin earlier said, we're not going to judge you here about your pajamas. We're not going to judge you about anything in your past. Welcome home. Welcome home. If your plans didn't turn out like you planned, if you found yourself doing things you swore you'd never do, If you have a past that you're ashamed of, welcome home. Welcome home. I think all of us can relate to all those things, right? And so, if this is your church home, I don't want them to just hear that from me. I want them to hear that from you. So, Coach Chris is going to call a little huddle here. Hands in, for real. Hands in. If this is your church home, hands in. We're going to say, welcome home on three. All right? One, two, three. Welcome home. Did you hear that? That's from us. Welcome home. Let's have the worship band come up. And uh, let me pray as they do. Let's pray.